0: Father, as we come to this story of of Adam and uh, this, where uh, we see him in a personal relationship with you, and we see the beginnings of that relationship, Lord, that, that uh, started out so well uh, before the fall, and Lord, I just ask today that as we look at this story, that uh, uh, we realize that 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 breath that you gave Adam, you offer to all of us that breath of heaven, Lord, uh, where you breathe on us and we become living souls and I just ask today that if there's anyone here that hasn't experienced that that has never experienced receiving your holy spirit, I ask today, Lord, that it today be their the day of their salvation, uh, Lord, we know if if we 've truly been born again, we know if we've truly received that breath of heaven and Lord, so uh, we thank you, those of us who have. We thank you for that great experience. And Lord, help us to, to not do as Adam did and fall into sin now that we've been uh, saved. We're going to sin sometimes, Lord, and we know the blood of Christ cleanses us of all unrighteousness, Lord, but but you've created us anew now so that we don't have to sin, so that we can live in victory and in power. And uh, Lord, that's the lesson that you're going to show us today as we... We look at this text and uh, we go on in our study in Genesis. So I ask, Lord, that you just anoint this study by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. And one of the most amazing and fascinating stories to me, mysterious stories, is found over in the book of John, chapter 20. And let me set the scene for you. Jesus has died on the cross. He's been crucified on the cross. He's been buried in the grave. And on the third day he was raised from the grave. And Mary Magdalene, you know, she was a tough cookie. She she wasn't afraid. She went to that gravesite and, and all the men were in, you know, the, the shepherd had been struck and the sheep had been scattered, so all the disciples were scattered throughout Jerusalem. And and there she was at the graveside, and she had quite an experience. She she ran into the risen Lord, Jesus Christ Himself. And so Mary uh Try, gather, I don't know how she did it. They didn't have cell phones back then. So somehow she got a hold of all the disciples and she said, look, I've seen the risen Lord. And so they mustered up all their strength and they went up to the upper room. They still were afraid because they knew the Jews were looking for them. They were probably going to hunt them down. And so they locked and bolted the doors. And, you know, I guess it made it pretty hard for Jesus to come in if he, if he was to come in. But they had the doors locked and, and uh, bolted. And then suddenly... Can you imagine this? Just suddenly, just, just imagine if it just happened right now. Suddenly, he appeared in that upper room, and and uh, they were just absolutely amazed. And the first thing he did, he showed that we were told in John twenty, he showed them the scars on his hands, and the scars on his feet, and the scar from the spear in his side, and uh, and. They couldn't believe what they saw. I mean, everything that Jesus had told them happened exactly the way uh, he he said it would. Remember, he said he would be given over uh, by the Jews to the the Romans, and he would be crucified. But on the third day, he would be buried, and on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. And now they're excited because, I mean, everything he had said was going to happen happened exactly the way he said it would. And then he speaks to them and he says he says peace to you. He says peace to you. I mean he saw this joy on their face and he said, "Hey, you got peace now. Peace to you." And then something really strange happens and this is the part of the passage I want to look at in John 20 verse 20 John 20 verse 22. He says, "And when he had said this, he breathed on them." Now what did he breathe on them? He breathed on them his spirit, the very breath of heaven. And why did he wait to do that at this point? I mean, why in the upper room did he choose to breathe on these disciples? Because before the cross, they were still in their sin. But now that he had died on the cross, they could actually receive the spirit of God and so He breathed on them and He said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And they received the Holy Spirit, and they at that point became living souls. Now, up until that point, they were mere men, just like any other man. They had a mind, they had a uh, soul, they even had a moral conscience. Uh, They had been with Jesus for three years. They had walked with Jesus. They had been close to Jesus. They had walked in this great light. They weren't walking in darkness. And I believe that they believed the truth, all of them but Judas, they believed all of these truths that Jesus was teaching them, and and he revealed great mysteries to them. He even gave them the power of the Holy Spirit because they cast out demons and they healed the sick. So they experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. But still, at that point, until that day, they were mere men. And then Jesus breathed on them, and they became living souls. And we're going to talk about what a living soul is here in just a little bit. But they became just what Adam became on that day when God breathed on him in the Garden of Eden. And that's why I set it up with that story and. In John, Because what happened to them is exactly what we're going to see happen to Adam as we go back to Genesis. So go back with me to Genesis chapter 2 at this time when Adam became a living soul. So we left off at the end of chapter 1. So pick up with me in Genesis chapter 2. And we'll read the first few verses there as we get started there. It says, it says, then the... Heavens. I'm in verse one of chapter two. Then the heavens and the earth, and all the host of them were finished. Now, when he talks about the heavens, what he's talk, what is he talking about here? What is Moses talking about? He's not talking about uh, the heaven where God dwells because that is an eternal city. God, didn't, God, that's always a work of God. It's never been finished and it's always been. And so, so he's talking about the first heaven which is our atmosphere and he's talking about the seventh, second heaven which is outer space. And he says then the heavens and the earth and all the host of them, everything on the heavens and the earth were finished. That includes the stars, and includes the fish, and includes the plants, it includes the birds, it includes all the animals and it included Adam and Eve and all of it was finished. And on the seventh that number seven, that that mark of perfection, that mark of completion, whenever you see that number seven, we know that things are complete, that they're perfected by God. So on that seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And then God blessed the seventh day. In, In other words, he sanctified it. What's it mean he sanctified it? He made it holy. It was holy unto him. It was made into a very special day. And he sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work. Watch this. Which God had created, which he had created out of nothing, and which he had made from uh, the dust of the earth. And so we're speaking of Adam and Eve and the animals there. Everything that he had created and he had made. And so God now rests. Now, God didn't rest Uh, because he was tired. I mean, God, we're told in Psalms uh, 121 that God never sleeps, he never slumbers. God is omnipotent. That means that he has infinite power. He has infinite energy. So he never tires. He could have gone right on creating. He could have created, he could create universes just like the universe we live in. He could speak them into existence forever. He could go right on creating as long as he wants to create. But he chose at this point, he chose to rest. And the reason he rested after six days, he was finished with his work. Look back at verse number 31. He looked at what he had done, and he said that it was very good. I mean, it's sort of like a songwriter who writes his very best song he's ever written. Or an author who writes the best book that he's ever written. And he says, you know, I can never top this. And so he rests from his work. And that's what God did. God couldn't top the creation of the universe, and so he takes a break. But God didn't need a break. But he knew that men and women would need a break. And so what he did, he worked for six days, and then he rested on the seventh day. Now, God could have created the universe and everything in the universe, the host of heaven and the host of the earth. He could create created it all with a blink, in a blink of an eye. But he chose to do it in six days and then rest on the seventh day so that he could set a pattern for us, the pattern that we call the Sabbath, that would be part of the law that was given to Israel, where you work for six days and then you rest. And uh, that's the pattern that he's given us. And you remember what Jesus said about the Sabbath. He said that the Sabbath was not made for men, I mean, the men were not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for men. And so the Sabbath was not to be a burdensome day. It was to be a day of blessing. Look, there is a great lesson for all of us in, the, in that line right there. The fact that the Sabbath was meant to be a blessing. What is our, we're not under law, so we're not, we don't have to keep the Sabbath. Actually, if you kept the Sabbath, you would have kept it yesterday. You're not under law, so you don't keep the Sabbath. Our Sabbath is a person. Our Sabbath rest is in Jesus Christ. But that rest should always be a blessing. It should never be a burden. I know people that work seven days a week and they never stop. You should take a break sometime and spend some time with the Lord because the Lord is our Sabbath rest. And it shouldn't be burdensome. I hear people sometimes say, well, I had to read the Bible this morning for two hours, or I'm going to read the Bible all week from eight to nine, five days a week, uh, and, and I'm going to pray for two hours and once I read the Bible for an hour, whatever. If you turn it into some type of law, if you turn it into in, in some type of burden, you're missing the point. Your time with the Lord should always be a blessing. That's the way that God, God set up the Sabbath. And so you've got this pattern here of six days of work and a day of rest. And it's also prophetic. I believe with, with all my heart that it's prophetic. Uh, God began a new work. I mean, he created the heavens and the earth in six days, and he rested on the seventh day. But we know the rest of the story. We're going to see when we get to Genesis chapter 3 that Adam fell. And at that point when Adam fell, God began a new work, the work of redemption. Now, how long is that work going to take? It's going to take six millenniums, 6,000 years. And then at the end of the 6,000 years, God is going to rest. He is going to come dwell on this earth with his creation, and he's going to rest for that seventh millennium, for that last thousand years, and then we will go into eternity. And so I believe, no doubt, that this this Sabbath is also prophetic. Uh, and I believe that it's coming very, very soon that at any moment now the trumpet could sound and the day of the Lord begin and the church be raptured to heaven. Then the great tribulation begin. And then, uh, at the end of the great tribulation, Jesus Christ will return and we will go into that Sabbath rest, that thousand years of rest that Jesus has ordained for this earth. But I do have some bad news for you. Uh, the, Rosh Hashanah, which I believe will be the day the trumpet is blown, that's the next feast to be fulfilled, was on September the 11th. So we have passed Rosh Hashanah this year, so I don't think it's going to happen this year. It is interesting, though, that Rosh Hashanah fell on 9-11. It might be that God's giving us some type of prophetic warning there that things are about to happen real, real soon. So I'm not trying to scare you. I'm I'm just I'm excited that the Lord is coming soon. Personally, one of the things that in study and prophecy that I've noticed is that on most Jewish calendars, we're still a hundred years away or a little bit over a hundred years before the sixth, end of that six thousand years. So I personally think we're going to be here a while longer, but it could come. No man knows the day or the hour, so it could come at any time. But anyway, it will be according to that pattern of six thousand years. Uh, or or six days of work and one period of rest. Six Six millenniums of work and one millennium of rest. Now, the Bible critic at this point would say this. He would say, if the seven days of creation are symbolic of thousands of years, why can't they be symbolic of millions and millions of years of evolution I mean couldn't Adam and Eve be symbolic there are a lot of Christians who do not believe in a literal Adam and Eve they believe that he is symbolic that he evolved from, from the primordial slime and eventually from an ape and eventually he became a man and, and Adam is a generic name for man and so, so uh, it's just really Genesis really a book of symbolism, much like Revelation. And and you could make that case if it wasn't for the way Genesis is written. Genesis is written in the opposite way of the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, you have all sorts of symbols that help you understand literal events and literal characters. In the book of Genesis, you have literal events that uh, have spiritual meaning later on in the Bible. So so it's written in the opposite way. Every single case in the Bible, you have a literal event or a literal character, in in, I'm saying in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, that later on is used symbolically. Uh, So it's just the opposite of Revelation. Let me me give you one example. Adam and Eve. Who is Adam symbolic of? He's symbolic of of all of mankind. You've got the first Adam and the last Adam and every Adam in between. So he's symbolic of the, of the whole human race. But he's also a literal person. And I want to show you that. I've shared this story with you on several occasions, but I remember when I was in seminary and, and I had a professor there, uh, a theology professor there, who didn't believe in a literal Adam and Eve. He never would come out and say it, but you, he beat around the bush an awful lot. And I knew what he believed. And so he, he, he came really close to saying it one day. And I said, before you say that, let me, let me show you something. And then I'm going to ask you a question. And I'm going to get you to follow me here. And I've, and I've shared this with you before, so bear with me. I'll probably share it with you several more times because I think it's very important. But go with me over to Mary's genealogy, uh, Jesus' genealogy that runs through the line of Mary. It's over in the Gospel of Luke. Hold your place in Genesis. It's over in the Gospel of Luke. In chapter number 3 of Luke. And I want to pick up chapter 3 of Luke, verse number 23. You have the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, the word genealogy is very important. We're going to be looking at that here a little bit later on in a little more detail. Uh, in verse 23, he says, Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, Being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Haley. Now Hale would be in Mary's line, not in Joseph's line. You get Joseph's line over in the book of Matthew. So we're in Mary's line. But then look at some of the characters in here as you work your way all the way back to Adam. You see in verse number 31, you see Nathan and David. In verse number 34, you see Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. In verse number 37, you see that old guy named Methuselah. Wouldn't you like to live as long as Methuselah? And then in verse 38, and this is the verse I want you to look at real carefully here. Listen to what he says. He says, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. Now, Seth had a literal father. Don't you think we would get his literal name right here if the Bible is consistent in context? We would. And what's says the literal name of Seth's father? His father's name is Adam. Well, who fathered Adam? Not an ape. And you better be real careful when you start saying that. Because let me tell you who you're calling an ape. You're calling God an ape. Because it says there to me that Adam is the son of God. He was fathered by God. And so if Adam is symbolic, then Seth might, it has to be symbolic. And if Seth is symbolic, then Abraham has to be symbolic. And David has to be symbolic. And what about Jesus Himself? He has to be could be symbolic. And so, there's no doubt in context here that Adam is a literal person, and and that's true for all of these events and characters in Genesis that become uh, that uh, in, start out literally and then become symbolic. Let me give you some other examples. In the garden, you have the Garden of Eden. Eden is symbolic of the promised land. It's symbolic of a world that is right. But it is a literal place. We'll see next week that the Garden of Eden is a literal place. That I still, I believe personally, and we'll talk about this next week, it's still here on this earth. But you're not going to be able to see it because it's guarded by angels in a dimension that you, you can't see. But it's still here. Uh, uh, but it's symbolic, it's certainly symbolic but it's also the literal home of Adam and Eve. There's no doubt about that. Abraham. Think of all the things that Abraham's symbolic of. He's the, he's the symbol of faith. He's the father of faith. But no one doubts that Abraham is a literal person. I mean, his very name, Abr- Abraham, father. Em, the plural for Hebrew. The, he's, he's the, he, the, for people, rather. Plural for people. He's the the father of all peoples. And he's symbolic of that, but he certainly was a literal person. All right, And then you've got Jacob. Jacob Do you think Jacob is a literal person? Certainly he's a literal person, but he's symbolic too. He's symbolic of who? Jacob's name became what? It became Israel, prince with God. And so he's symbolic of the nation of Israel. But he's also the literal father of a literal Isaac. And a, I mean, a literal, a literal son of a literal Isaac. Paul in the book of Galatians, he speaks of Sarah as being symbolic of the covenant of grace. And he speaks of Hagar as being symbolic of the covenant of law. But they were literal women with literal sons. There was a literal Ishmael and there was a literal Isaac. And so those are literal people. Sodom and Gomorrah, people say Sodom and Gomorrah is just a you know, just symbolism, it really didn't happen. Go to the Dead Sea and look around. It looks to me like it might have happened. I mean, I, I know it happened because the Bible said it happened. It was a literal event. It's certainly symbolic of depraved people and depraved nations. I mean, sodomites are uh, synonymous or used to refer to homosexuals. In Revelation eleven 8, uh, we're told that when the two witnesses are killed, they're killed in the city that is spiritually called Sodom. What's, what is it spiritually It's spiritually uh, symbolic of Jerusalem is what uh, we're given there in in Revelation chapter 11. So all of these things, and I could go on and on and on with this, You have all of this symbolism that comes out of Genesis, but it begins with a literal person or a literal event. All right, now, you got that lesson. Let's go to the next set of verses. Pick up with me in in verse number 4. Go back to Genesis and... uh, Let's go to verse number 4. And here's another little, you know, I hate to bore you with theological lessons, but this is, where, this is how you can combat some of that uh, liberal criticism that comes at the Bible if you really get some of these things down. And, and, and uh, so, so bear with me here. There's some good stuff here, but, but, uh, but also some theological stuff that we need to look at. So, so look at verse number 4. It says, this is the history. Now, that word history is an interesting word, so you underline that, because we're going to come back to that in just a second. This is the history of the heavens and the earth, the first heaven, the second heaven, the atmosphere, the outer space, and the earth, when they were created in the day that the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth. In other words, remember we had this water firmament above the earth. We have the atmosphere and above that we have this water canopy that encircles the earth. And so there was no rain, not until the flood of Noah. There was no rain, but there was this mist that uh, he said that for the Lord had not caused it to rain uh, in the earth. And there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. They're like this giant sprinkler system that God had set up for the earth. And so there's this perfect environment. We saw that, we're not going to get back into that again, but here's what I want you to look at for a minute. We've gone over this before, but most of you know it by this time, that in the original text, there were no verses, there were no chapters. But the Bible did have its divisions. It was divided into books, and it was divided into sections in books, and usually you can find those markers somewhere in the text. I mean, if you're looking at the Psalms, you you come to a new Psalm each time, and so so you don't need chapters. You know you're going to a new Psalm. Uh, You look at Genesis, and there's a marker here that divides Genesis. Actually, Genesis chapter 1, or the first segment of Genesis, they weren't divided into chapters, ends at verse number 3. And we begin a new section in verse number 4. And it's marked by that word history. It says, this is the history of the heavens. Now, I don't, again, I don't want to bore you with the Hebrew, but it's a very important word. It's called the Toledoth. That's, that's the Hebrew word for history here. It's the Toledoth. In most places in the Bible, all but a few other cases, it is translated genealogy or generations. So this ends that first section. It says this is the generation. This is the genealogy of the heavens and the earth. Now, you get your next Taladoth, your next marker. Follow me carefully here. Go to chapter 5 and look at verse number 9. This is, and this is where the next section ends of Genesis. If, you were, if, if there was a Hebrew uh, scholar marking this before there were chapters and verses, this is where he would mark the, first, the second chapter at the, at the at beginning of verse number 9. This is the Taladoth, the genealogy of Noah. So what are we being told right here? We're being told, and I'm going to make a point in all this, so follow me with this. Between Genesis 2, verse 4, and Genesis uh, 6, verse 9. I, I think I said 5. It's verse 6, verse 9. Genesis 6, verse 9. Between that, who's the main character? When we get to verse 9 of chapter 6, who becomes the main character? Noah. Who's the main character between verse, actually characters, I should say, between chapter 2, verse 4, and chapter 6, verse 9? It's Adam and his family. So what we're getting in this second section is a personal look at Adam and his family. So what we get when we we get to chapter 6, verse 9, then we're going to start on a new character, and his name is Noah. Noah. And we're going to look at the times of Noah before the flood. Now go with me over to chapter 10. Look at verse number 1. And you get your next break in the book of Genesis. It says, now this is the Toledoth of the sons of Noah. So the sons of Noah, their life came when? After the flood. And so we get this post-flood story in these genealogies. Then you go to you go to chapter 11, look at verse number 27. This is the genealogy, the Taladoth of Terah, who begot who? Abram. So what story are we beginning at that point? We're beginning the story of Abram. Then you go all the way over to chapter 25. Abraham had two sons, and what were his two sons' names? Esau. and Isaac. So go over to chapter 25. Look at verse number 42. Now this is the Taladoth of Ishmael. I said Isaac. He had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. I was right. Ishmael and Isaac. And verse number 19 you have, this is the genealogy, the Taladoth of Isaac. Now who's the next character? The next two characters that come on board. Esau and Jacob. So you go all the way over to chapter uh, 20 36 go to chapter 36. And then you get in verse number nine, this is the Taladoth of Esau. And then verse number 37, this is, it says the history, but again, it's that word Taladoth, the genealogy of Jacob first chapter 37, verse two, you see, this is the genealogy of Jacob. So you see, all of these main characters and all of these main stories are divided by what? Not by chapters, but by their genealogy. Now, why did I take you through all those theological gymnastics? Go back with me for a minute. Go back with me to 1st uh, chapter 2, and you get this first Toledoth here. And it begins... You have this first section, and this first section is the genealogy of the heavens and the earth and the beginnings of Adam and Eve. Now, and it ends there in chapter 2, verse number 4. This is the taladuf of the heavens and the earth, which they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. So, what's the earth's genealogy? Where did the earth come from? Where did the heavens come from? They came from God the Father. They came from a holy God. And so so here's the point I'm trying to make right here. The critic comes along, and he looks at chapter number 2. And all of a sudden, I mean, back in chapter number 1, we're told about the whole creation in the seven days, and we're told about at the end of the creation, on the sixth day, how Adam and Eve were created. Well, the critic comes, and he looks at chapter number 2, and we see the creation of Adam and Eve again. And the critic says, you see... There's more than one author to Genesis. Because, I mean, why would the guy write the story twice? They don't look at the spiritual. They simply look at what's on the surface of the material. And they say, why would he write it twice? And so they come to this conclusion right away after looking at two chapters of the Bible that the Bible is nothing more than a hodgepodge, a collection of stories that were written by different authors. And then they were gathered together into the book we call the Bible. And it's just one big mess as far as they're concerned. No, I don't see a mess right here. I see a perfect design in what God is doing. What God is doing here in this first Taladah, he's showing the overall creation of the heavens and the earth. And now we look at that second Taladoth and it's about Adam and his family. And so everything in between focuses now on Adam and Eve and on their family. Because, because we're dealing now with a personal God dealing with a personal individual named Adam and his wife named Eve and the rest of their family. And so there's a purpose for for these breaks the way there are. And there's a purpose that he goes back to this creation. Because what you're going to see now right away is just how personal the creation of Adam and Eve, really I'm going to go to Adam, how personal the creation of Adam was. I mean, first of all, look at the name of God. That's, That's something you see. In, 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 and this, again, the critic would argue just the opposite. They'd say, look, one uses God, the other uses Lord God. Look, I understand exactly why it's God in one and it's Lord God in the other. And I'm going to explain that to you. You look back and look back at go to Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. I mean, in the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. Then jump all the way to 31. Uh, the last verse of chapter number one, then God, Elohim, saw that everything he had made and indeed it was very good. Look at verse number 29. We've got God uh, and God said, "I see, I've given you every herb. And then look back at verse 28. Uh, uh, then God blessed them. Look at verse 27. Then God created man in his own image. Then look at verse 28. Then God, Elohim, said, let us make man. So over and over again in chapter 1, you see Elohim. Now, who is Elohim? Elohim is the all-powerful, almighty, transcendent God. When I mean transcendent, he's a God you cannot know. He's beyond knowing. You can't have a relationship with Elohim. But now look as we come to chapter 2. When you come to chapter 2, and you you come to that second Taladah. Even even when you're still in the first Taladah, in verse number 3, it says, then God. But now, look as you come to verse number 4, and you switch gears now to this personal creation of Adam. Who's in charge now? Jehovah Elohim. Jehovah Elohim. The great I am. I am who I am. Not any longer a transcendent God, but an immanent God. A God who's involved in his creation. A God who's involved. He's got company now. He's got Adam now. He's going to share all of this with Adam. And so now he's got a name. He's not just the transcendent Elohim. He's Jehovah Elohim. You see the difference there? A loving God, a personal God, an eminent God who's, exact, who's actively involved in the life of Adam and he's actively, listen to me, he's actively involved in your life and my life. Be really glad that Jesus' name is not Elohim is salvation. His name is Jehovah is salvation. Yeshua, that's the word, the Hebrew word that we transliterate from the Greek into Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I mean, Jehovah, the personal God, is the one who saved me. He died for me on a cross. He hung there for me on a cross. You see the big difference here? And now look at how personal this gets. I mean, it can't get any more personal than what you see in verse number 7. Look at verse number 7. And Jehovah Elohim formed formed man of the dust of the ground, And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Just like those disciples in that upper room, he breathes into his nostrils, and Adam becomes a living being. You know, in chapter 1, you you, you see the contrast here. In chapter 1, it doesn't say God formed Adam. It says God made Asa, the word Asa. It's a really sterile word. It's like making an inanimate bookshelf or something. He made Adam. But here when we get to verse number 7, and now Adam is on this earth, it says we're told that the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, formed Adam. I mean like a great potter creating his masterpiece. I mean he forms Adam. He forms Adam. The masterpiece of his creation was none other than Adam. Listen to me really carefully right here. I mean, human beings are not some accident evolved out of a primordial slime or swamp. They are the masterpiece, the creation of the potter, the great potter, Jehovah Elohim. That's why Satan immediately came at Adam to destroy Adam because Adam was the greatest of all of God's creation, greater than Satan, and Satan couldn't stand that. You know, maybe we'll ponder some of this when we get to to chapter 3, but why did Satan fall and attack him in the first place? Why did he fall in the first place? It might have very well been when God said, I'm going to create somebody greater than you. And Satan couldn't stand that. So he rebelled, and then he came to attack Adam, and he's been attacking us ever since. But Jesus defanged him on that cross. And so he can't hurt you. All you've got to do is resist him and he will flee from you. So you're the masterpiece of God. And if we weren't created as some inanimate object to be put on a shelf. We were created as the sons of God. Remember that. Look, go back. You don't have to go back there now. But look at uh, how Adam's described in Jesus' genealogy, he's described as the, Seth. Seth is the son of Adam who is the son of God. He was, we were created to be the sons of God. And how did we become the sons of, how did Adam become a son of God? Almighty God. I mean, Jehovah God himself bent over. Now, this has to be Jesus the, pre, the theoph- it has to be a theophany here that we're not being shown, but I have no doubt it's a theophany. It's none other than Jesus Christ. He bends over. Now, you know, Adam's going to receive the breath of heaven. And, and it doesn't say that, 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 that from God's throne in heaven, he breathed down on Adam. To breathe into his nostril, he had to be right there. How intimate is that? that God bent down and put his mouth on Adam's nostril and breathed the life of heaven into his nostrils. You know what? Man, I, 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 I want to jump and shout too. I mean, that God would do that for us. How intimate and personal. You know, you can, you can be a lost Bible critic and you can read that and you can say, well, look, that's just another story. No, that's the greatest story that's ever been told that God breathed, that he bent down, Jehovah God breathed down and breathed the very breath of heaven into Adam's soul. Look, I have no doubt that before this happened, Adam was alive already. I mean, he had already, uh, I think he was asleep at this point, but he had already received the nephesh. He had been made out of the soil. He had been, he had been created, and he had been given a, the nephesh. He had been given a soul, a a soul and a mind much greater than an animal because uh, he he was given the ability uh, to, to distinguish between good and bad. At that point, when he was created, he was given a nephesh. You look around this world right now at all the lost people who have not received this breath of heaven, and that's the state that Adam was in without sin at that point. He didn't have the Spirit of God. He had a soul and he had a mind and God put him to sleep and he breathed the very life of God into his nostrils. But before that, he he had a nephesh. He he was more advanced than all the animals. He had greater intelligence than all all the animals. He was able to create. He would have been able, even if he had received the breath of God, he would have been able to create just like God creates. Not just like God creates because God creates out of nothing but he would be able to make like God makes. He created us to do that, with or without his spirit. But then God breathes on Adam, just like he breathed on the disciples in the upper room, and he became a living soul. Now, why would God do that at that point? Because Adam had not sinned at that point. Why did, were the disciples able to receive the breath of heaven in the upper room? Because Jesus had died for their sin. Jesus didn't have to die for Adam's sin if Adam hadn't sinned. I mean, Adam had it pretty good. I, I, I mean, and so, but he becomes a living soul, and he when he became a living soul, he had a, the, a spirit with the ability to think abstractly. I, and, and I mean, through his mind, he could think abstractly. What I mean. By thinking abstractly, I'm thinking that means to think beyond the here and now. To be able to think about eternal things. That means that he had a soul. Now listen to me very carefully here. He had a soul with the ability to love God. He had a soul. And this is what made him different, really different. He also had a soul with the ability to hate God. To hate God by doing evil, by disobeying God. You know, that's what hating God is. It's disobeying God. You see the risk that God Almighty took when he made Adam. He gave him the ability to love him. He gave him a choice to love him or to hate him. And Adam eventually chose the latter. When he disobeyed God, he chose the The latter. What a different world it would be now if he had chosen to love God and not to do evil. But don't be too hard on Adam. Because I guarantee you, if you were there, eventually you would have done the same thing. But God took that risk he took that risk because he wanted a people, his own people, to love him and to fellowship with him in his new creation. And when he created Adam, I have no doubt that God knew that Adam would fall. No doubt. And I'll tell you why I know that because we're told that the plan of salvation was laid before the foundation of the world. So God knew what was going to happen. He knew that Adam was going to fall. He knew that he was going to have to redeem Adam and he was going to have to redeem mankind. And he knew that that plan was going to take 6,000 years, not six days. Because it involved the choice of men. And he knew that he was going to have to create a man who would follow him in faith. And that man was Abraham. We'll see that man later on. And from Abraham would come the 12 tribes of Israel, and and from the 12 tribes of Israel would come David, and through David's loins would come the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would die for the sins of the world. And this was a plan laid before the foundation of the world through all of these generations. And that's why these generations are so important. And that's why the Bible is actually a book of Taladahs. That's why on that word today it's a book of generations because over and over again in the Bible you run into genealogy after genealogy after genealogy and here's what you learn from those genealogies most of the most well most people don't learn from them because they skip them poor Brandon he's going to have to teach through a lot of genealogies on Wednesday night and there's going to be an urge to want to skip those genealogies but I'll be there so so he won't have any choice He goes to, he's a pretty big guy, but. (laughs) Look, seriously, there are some of the greatest lessons in the Bible in the genealogy. Just study the names in the genealogies. Every name that God gave these people has a meaning. Every name. I love over in the genealogy of Judah in in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, the name Jabez. I pray that prayer all the time. Lord, keep me from evil. His name means pain. Keep me from evil, Jabez said, this pain says, that I don't cause pain to others. That I don't cause pain to you, Lord. That I don't cause pain to my family. That I don't cause pain to others. It's The prayer part of the big, biggest part of the prayer of Jabez. But as important as all these genealogies are, as you go through these genealogies, most of these genealogies end at some point. I mean, we looked at some genealogies a while ago. The genealogy of Ishmael, it ends right there. The genealogy of of Esau, it ends right there. The genealogy of Saul, it ends when you get to the genealogy of Saul. It doesn't go on anymore. But there's one genealogy that we're going to trace all the way through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and so on and so on. So on all the way to the Gospel of Luke. Chapter number 3. And it runs into where it ends in Jesus Christ, the Savior. And that's what this Bible is all about. It's not some hodgepodge book that was put together accidentally with guys talking to each other over campfires. It is the Word of God. And it's organized perfectly by God. You know, that genealogy of Jesus Christ that you get in Luke chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 1 is the genealogy of God himself isn't that amazing the same god who breathed on adam bent over and put his mouth over adam's nostrils and breathed the breath of adam a breath of heaven into adam's nostrils is the same god you see in Luke chapter 3 Jesus, the same God who died on the cross, he, the same God who made the disciples a living soul, made Adam a living soul with the ability to love him or the ability to hate him. And in the end, Adam chose the latter. And every one of us have chosen the latter. We've chosen to rebel Against God And so what has God done? He's put into action the plan laid before the foundation of the world. And we see that carried on in the generations. Uh, uh, but we also see that carry on, carried on through everyone who's ever received the breath of heaven. Everyone. You know, there's another book of generations, of Toledos. Its name is in the Bible, but it's not in the Bible. There's too many people that couldn't be in the Bible. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And in that book is the genealogy of every spiritual family who's ever lived who has received the breath of heaven every person who's chosen to love God. You know, it's a shame. I wish we could have just had the, been born again and received the breath of heaven and we had never sinned again. But we still have Adam's old nature. And so our flesh warth against our spirit and our spirit warth against the flesh. I, you know, Adam had it made because he, all he had to do was not eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the only thing that he could do wrong. But when you get up in the morning and you begin to breathe, well, hopefully you breathe while you're sleeping. God is heavy. But when you get up in the morning and you begin to wake up, those choices, I think they come at you in your dreams. They come at you all day long. Everything is a choice. Am I going to love God or am I going to hate God? Am I going to obey God or am I going to disobey God? It's a choice. we got to make those choices 24-7. And thank goodness that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But i got to tell you, what are we doing? What are we saying to God when we choose to do evil? The heck with your cross. I'll just take advantage of your cross. But I don't love you enough to put away my sin. How sad is that? It's time we gird up our loins, as the Bible says, and we begin to live for Jesus Christ, and we make the right choices, and we choose to love him in the way we live our lives. You know, it's our choice. And when we choose to love him, you know what we choose? We choose Life. And when we choose to obey, disobey Him, we choose death. We choose to hate the one who created us, created our souls, and breathed the breath of heaven into our lungs. He loves you so much you can't even imagine. I think it's time we start showing him that we love him too. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for what you teach us in your word. Lord, what can we say? Lord, I know on August the 23rd, 1989, Lord... You breathe the very breath of heaven into my lungs, into my soul, into my spirit. And Lord, I know everybody in this room can tell you a time when when they received your breath from on high. Father, you're a living, personal, loving God. And Lord, you've created this creation for us to share with you in the joys and, and victories and all the great things that, that we have now and in our future. Father, help us to live as people who love you, not as people who hate you. Help us to live like the children you've made us to be. Father, if there's anyone in this room here today that isn't sure whether or not they're saved, Lord, let today be the day that they open their spirits to receive your breath, to receive your spirit, to be born again to be in that great toledoth called the Lamb's Book of Life. Father, we're so grateful our names are there. We're so blessed. You're such a good God. We love you, Lord. We love you in Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.